Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving. I'll shortly be welcoming this week's guest, Ole Moritzen from Denmark. But first of all, I have an announcement to make. As a result of many trains of thought, and especially um, some of the conversations that I've been having with people on this podcast, um, I'd like to announce that I have come to my senses. I'm kind of mucking about, but when I say I've come to my senses, what seems to be happening is that from so many different directions, I'm realizing that the the theme um, that we sort of work and rework through the podcast of restoring vital connection or restoring life-giving connection um, as the key way of discussing um, people coming back to land and, you know, trying to, um, well, looking to address the real problems and dilemmas that are at, 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 the, at the heart of things just now and, and are resulting in, you know, the catastrophes, the multiple catastrophes that we see unfolding before us, such as climate change and uh, this sort of epidemic of of uh, malaise of, you know, mental ill health and, and diseases of modern life, community breakdown and, um, you know, general ecological devastation. You know, the whole thing is caused by um, this breach, this breaking of the bond between people and their landscapes and then just fine-tuning that thought a little bit, seeing that landscapes actually consist of um, human communities uh, in part. They're part of those landscapes. And then those human communities, as part of those landscapes, consists of individual human beings and their bodies. So, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, severance of that bond between people and land includes what um, you can witness by just just looking at how we're c cut off from our own bodies, cut off from um, other people, you know, the, the intimacy and, and depth of interrelatedness and community of, you know, living with and for other people that, that just doesn't seem to happen now like it used to. And it used to be um, such a normal thing for us to really share life and, and trust and rely on each other, look out for each other and, and have that sense of belonging. And, you know, with where, where our bodies are concerned that we feel at home in our bodies and that we feel, you know, our body to be a, a safe space and, and that we trust the processes of our body um, to be good, you know, that the that body can heal itself, that body can tell you what you need to eat, all kinds of wonderful things which are really basic to life and are a matter of, you know, these connections being in place or you could say also that the communication is in place that, that we are um, sort of woven together with these just threads that that communicate meaning and 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 tell us what what's important what's needed what's really going on and so I've kind of had this dawning realization rather than a sudden kind of flash of insight um, that so much of the vital connection that's been lost turns out to be in the realm of the senses because the senses are what plugs us in to, oh, oops, caught myself using a mechanical analysis uh, analogy there. Anyway, that's, that's such as life. Um, I'm stuck in this mechanized world. Anyway, at some point I'm going to really discuss that, like metaphors and whether they come from organic sources or mechanical ones. But anyway, uh, so let's say weaves us in would be a better nice um metaphor to our surroundings you know so there's these threads of information and 
channels of, of, of this sort of ebb and flow um, that shapes us and, and weaves us into our surroundings, whether that's other people, you know, our senses um, picking up on the cues of, of other people, um, you know, witnessing their presence through sight and sound and smell and touch and all these things, whether it's us picking up on what's happening in a landscape um, that enables that two-way flow that we can respond to what's there. I keep talking about, you know, if you see berries that you approach and gather and pick and eat. Um, and then lastly, you know, like we talk about the five physical senses, but we have, um, we have these other senses inside our bodies um, about the, you know, the internal space where we, we're aware of how we're feeling. We check in with how, how, how we're feeling. And, um, you know, that's a lot of the wisdom of the body to do with eating, which we touch on briefly here in this podcast and, and much more depth in the uh, Fred Provenza one. You know, that's about um, listening to what our body's saying, but those, those are sensory things, all these kind of sensory pathways whereby we pick up on, on how, you know, our body has, for example, interacted with foods that we've ingested or how our body has responded to something outside us. You know, like if somebody looks at us funny and then we feel funny, um, we can check in with that and, and, and um, perhaps not be swept away by it if, um, if we check in with our feelings. But that, again, is a whole other subject um, that we're probably going to do some stuff on interpersonal neurobiology um, in the next few weeks. I've talked a lot about it, but I think we're going to reach out to some potential guests who, who can, you know, guide us into that area with, with some real depth of, of insight. I and mean, all of that's been leading up to this week's podcast because I was just amazed um, to just get a sense of the focus that Ola and, and, and his team have on sort of reigniting that, that vital uh, sensory area of taste in the experience of food and um, putting that in the context of this sort of convivial setting of the family meal. And uh, yeah, I just think it's kind of extraordinary and wonderful that someone, a scientist, is using the insights that we can gain into um, you know, the senses and, and the act of eating to really start to do some amazing work, bringing people back into that experience, that basic biological experience of, of, um, of tasting and the basic social experience of, of gathering and eating together in order to um, bring about real change in in how people eat and and um, as he says to you know to realize these goals of creating a more sustainable food system so okay that's enough for now and we'll get on to that talk so i'm delighted to welcome ole moritzen to the worldwide podcast now i know ole from his amazing books umami unlocking the secrets of the fifth taste and also seaweeds, edible, available, and sustainable. And, and as you'll see from our conversation, these are very uh, interrelated topics. But Ole is involved in some, also some cutting-edge research and some sort of public education initiatives. So Ole, welcome. And Thank um, you very much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a real delight to have you. And perhaps you, you could explain those other bits uh, far better than I could. Um, and just tell people about the other work that you're you're involved with currently. Yeah, my my background is a, a natural scientist. I'm a, I'm a physicist. I'm even a theoretical physicist. But over the years, I've developed an interest in in cooking and in food and the science behind cooking, and in particular, uh, taste. And that has taken me in many different directions. Um, umami is one. Seaweeds is another one. Uh, the general 
food you find in the marine environment is sort of the overaging theme. And um, I've been taking this into fundamental and basic research, but also into uh, outreach and public uh, communication. And currently, for the last five years, I've been running a fairly large uh, national Danish Center for Taste. It's, in fact, the largest ever in Denmark public dissemination of science to young people and children. And our focus is something as basic as taste. And we are a group of people, 50, 60 people, that count all the way from anthropologists and philosophers, uh, linguists, uh, uh, people in, in humanities and social sciences, natural scientists, uh, people in education and dissemination of knowledge. And um, we really start with the senses. Um, that is, we want the public, in particular the children and young people, to focus attention on what how they sense the world. And um, in particular, the part of the world we eat, which is food. And uh, what we sort of noticed is that there's so much talking about food in context of health, and nutrition, calories, sustainability, that the main part with food that really makes us prefer certain kinds of food, which is the way we interact with the food via the senses, it's almost forgotten. Mm. And there are many examples how wrong this can actually go, and I'm pretty sure that many of the diet-related uh, diseases we see is now sort of um, growing epidemically is due to the fact that we don't really know how to use our senses. So one of the um, things we're doing is that we're developing a teaching material for schools, both for, um, elementary school and also high school, and even also chef schools, teaching material that starts with taste and then unfolds knowledge about food and food systems and how we human beings interact with food. And in the um, elementary school system, we've now developed uh, materials uh, for the teachers such that they can teach, and that's our claim, and we've, I think we've demonstrated it, uh, you can teach any uh, topic in school via taste. It be mathematics, uh, language, uh, history, uh, of course, natural sciences. And um, this is uh, something that we uh, have great hopes to see how children would then gain ownership to their senses and then hopefully be able to navigate uh, with more insight in this complex foodscape, which is, um, which is the fact of the, of, of the modern world. And we, 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 uh, we have that uh, conviction that it doesn't help with all sorts of campaigns and, and uh, threats uh, such that uh, people are told you have to do this and this and that, it's not going to work, certainly not in the long run. You have to gain ownership yourself. So that's basically uh, the main idea behind this big project. I mean, that's fascinating. When, when you say that if people learn to use their senses better, they would, they would eat better. Not necessarily eat. It means what you mean by, by better. But with some insight, um, you uh, may actually find out that when you pay attention to your taste, you may not only just crave for sweet mm. or, 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 or eat things that basically are just garbage. And uh, quite often, because um, either we don't have any language about it or we don't communicate about it, we hurry through our meals and we eat all sorts of things which we shouldn't eat. So it really starts with maybe bringing back what one could call food culture 
That is, that food is something that originally by sort of, that's the evolutionary path of human beings. Uh, we, we started being chefs around um, almost two million years ago, around the fire. And, you know, human beings have been using fire. Uh, and by the way, we're the only species that actually heats read our food. And that sort of is the root of communities of human beings. So eating and having a communal meal is something that is very fundamental for being a human being. And nowadays, more and more people eat alone, uh, both young, but in particular elder, elderly people. We eat on the move. We don't take, take time to really pay attention to what the census tells us. And yeah. I mean, the one, one way of finding out is that you ask your best friend, uh, what did you have for dinner last night or two days ago? And the friend may sort of respond and say, well, I had this and this and then, and, and um, to the extent it can be remembered, there will certainly be very little remembrance about the sensory cues of the food, certainly not when it comes to taste. We had um, a guy on the podcast a while ago called uh, Fred Provenza. I'm not sure if you've come across his work. He talks a great deal about post-ingestive feedback. And the, the work that he's doing is, is about what, what he describes as the wisdom of the body. It's like, and, he, and he's learned this mostly from studying grazing animals. The animals get a sense of, of having been satisfied by obtaining nutrients that they need as a result right. of food. And, right. and, this, and they get post-ingested feedback, which, which, which makes them seek out the same foods again, should they have uh, like nutritional deficits. And I wonder if like, in terms of this sensory information, it's almost the way he talks about it, that, that you've got things like taste receptors in virtually every cell in your body, and certainly in every organ in your body. That's that, right, and that's, that's really weird. Uh, and, uh, and many of these uh, receptors function is not known in detail. And uh, we're just puzzled by finding the same receptors, for instance, in the heart or in the stomach, receptors that are related to our taste, taste receptors. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised, because suppose it would be the other way around, that we found certain receptors in the heart or in some organ and then later found out that they were also in our taste buds and then we say how come that these heart uh, receptors are in the, in the taste buds. So I think this is just telling us that there's so much we don't know about communication systems in the human body. And one of the things I myself have been quite interested in, in the sort of after post uh, ingesting food, that is the signal of umami, which is a, a basic taste, which I believe we're going to talk about a little later. But uh, this is an example, it, it has been demonstrated now that uh, umami receptors, or glutamate receptors, I should say, throughout the gastrointestinal system, and they're signaling back to the brain about, for instance, satiety, which is a very important signal um, in order for us to get kind of a homeostatic uh, controlled intake of food. That is that we have to eat a certain amount, but not too much. Fantastic. Ole, I have a, I have a friend with me is um, wanting to join the conversation, if that's all right with you. He's, 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 his name's Dan Saladino, and he works for BBC Radio for Food Programme. Right, I've actually come to spend some time with Miles to talk about taste and in particular sourness, but I was interested in what you were saying about the receptors and the fact that we find them in different parts of our body. And with sour, my understanding is that the receptors that allow us to detect sourness also appear in our, our ears as well, uh, in terms of the system that we have to retain balance. 
Why they're there, we don't know. Well, that's, uh, that's also a mystery to me, and I, I should say I'm certainly not an expert in any of these areas. I'm not really in, on the biological side or biochemical side of, of the sensory sciences, but uh, I've come across similar observations. Now I mentioned the heart, that, that people have found bitter receptors in, in the heart, and why they're there, we have no idea. And just to pick up on that point that Miles mentioned as well about our lack of um, attention to the senses and how we experience food. Um, and you mentioned this timeline of two million years of evolution in our relationship with food. When do you think we, when do you think we, we had a big break? When, when did the problem start to appear in terms of our, the opportunities we give ourselves to sense what we're eating? I think um, it's something that has happened gradually uh, in modern times where um, um, people do not live in families throughout the day. Uh, uh, and um, I guess if you go back to the time when most people work in, in, in agricultural area, it was family run and you met uh, at uh, meals, certainly twice a day, maybe even three times a day. And uh, during the times of, of industrialization, uh, people would more be more away from home. Uh, I guess in the early days, uh, certainly the men went home for lunch if possible. But now, as time has gone by, uh, more and more people do not eat at home. Um, and I guess if we go back uh, 20, 30 years ago, certainly in this country, uh, there was really only the evening meal, maybe the morning meal, but the evening meal was left for, for, for the communal meal. And I would say in many families that is about to go as well, because there's so many things people prioritize higher. Um, I, I quite often have this discussion with families with children, and, 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 and they say, we, we don't have time to eat together with the children because we have to bring them to sports or they go to ballet or they have to watch television and look at screens. And so the meal is, uh, the, common, the common meal is getting a lower priority and there's always something that intervenes. And now there are more and more people actually sort of multitasking during meals. They may not even sort of be present in the context of interacting with food, they just gobble down the food while they look television or look at the, the, their, their mobile phones. And which really then brings, to the, brings me to the my main point here, that is that we don't really take, we don't take, take time to eat. It's something that has to be, uh, we have to hurry to have it done in order to move on to the next. And that's most prominently seen when people are sort of on the move, that there are more and more people who eat while they move. Um, so you can see uh, places of, of where people commute, at stations, um, and the metro, wherever they go, they're all, there are more and more places where you can buy food and eat food. So the whole fast food culture is, is also part of bringing down the communal meal. But it's a bit chicken and egg, um, just to use that, that reference in that clearly time is a factor, but also the industrialization and processing of our food, which we're told saves us time, um, but also is, is based around stronger, I, I guess, more um, uh, restricted tastes as well. So That's another thing with diversity in, mm. in, in, in the foodscape and the diversity of, of flavors. 
And I think that's now quite clearly demonstrated with many vegetables and fruit, fruits we eat. And, and, and also, that's also, it's also true with livestock because of the um, quest for um, faster production, um, quicker um, slaughtering of animals, uh, fast growth of, of fruits and, and vegetables. Um, uh, we, we found um, the variants of these species that have been chosen for, for fast growth, um, um, quick and, and, and large, large profit and something that can be transported. And, and during all this process of optimizing all sorts of things with our food, um, no one has really paid much, atten much attention to the flavor. And as you may have seen recently, over the last couple of years, when the genes of tomato has been sequenced, um, uh, it has been found out that during this um, breeding process of selecting the sorts that goes to the supermarket, the genes uh, for, for, for many flavor compounds, they're gone. Mm. Simply because that has not been the focus. And now there's a talk about putting them back again. Um, and um, so they're simply gone. And at the same time, um, the taste compounds and the other aroma compounds, they'd be diluted because obviously when plants grow faster, when we're talking about plants, they're more water. So there's a dilution effect. And, and it's, it's sort of sad then to, to see that uh, if you sort of go um, a, a generation back in time where you actually had these other species, whether it be animals or plants or fruits, um, the, the flavors that you have in these older species, when, when young people are presented with them, they say they, it's, it smells or tastes very strange and they, they tend to like the modern ones. And so over a generation, maybe two, the uh, appreciation of um, the, flavor, the flavor of foodstuff um, which was and uh, the way they used to be, uh, it's also going. Well, there's there's a whole thing about the the flavor chemistry industry, um, particularly in the United States, where we're being trained to associate flavors with things that, that they have nothing to do with because the flavors appear as food additives rather than because that that's exactly what has happened. Then um, uh, companies are bringing flavor back. Uh, artificial flavors yeah. to um, to the foodstuff, and 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 um, they they signals so or they cues to our liking of them. So we 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 are we are sort of forced to or we become to like foodstuff that should have never have been eaten, <laughs> but they they signal to us, for instance, sweetness and also some of the particular sweetness and, and also some of the flavors. That are characteristic of, of of ripe fruits, and then you gobble them down. There's a wonderful book um, uh, about this topic, um, uh, the, um, the 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 Rito effect. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the book I was thinking of actually in saying that by uh, by Mark Shatsky, and he I think he pointed out quite clearly and documented. So he's, he's his his point of reference is this Fred Provencer guy. That I was saying about he's he's the guy he hangs around with that does all the work with sheep and goats and and it means that we're basically linking um, flavors to, to to sugar and carbohydrate as you say instead of instead of um, linking it to so that he he makes the point that you go off and eat um, a yogurt flavored with with fruit flavors like you just mentioned and and, right. and and your body would get a liking for that flavor based on the fact it's got loads of sugar 
Whereas because in, in, in over evolutionary timescales, our ancestors, before we started eating meat, we were plant eaters and fruit eaters, and, and we still, our brains still remember those uh, cues or those flavors to, that will guide us towards um, a fruit that is ripe and not uh, poisonous. And, in, in, and after, and this is where umami comes in, because when we then talk about, about uh, taste, uh, obviously sweet is very important for us in terms of calories. Uh, and that's very important in, in, in constant evolution because it will give us the energy to build the big brains that are so characteristic with the with Homo sapiens. And uh, being meat eaters, which we have to face, we are meat eaters um, and uh, have been, been meat eaters for two million years. Uh, uh, we crave uh, what is characteristic of meat and that is, uh, the basic taste that is characteristic of meat is, is umami. And um, this we can actually bring all the way up to today. So we still crave sweet and umami. And, um, but the point is now, nowadays is that we can not and should not um, crave umami from meat because it's not possible to make sustainable and also healthy uh, population by, by eating all this red meat. So we have to look for sources that are rich in umami, um, but are uh, uh, vegetable or vegan, or vegetarian or vegan, vegan sources. But, but the fundamental craving for umami is something that is, I mean, we are primed to do that. We'll find umami and sweet in the mother's milk. And um, so I think, and this is sort of bringing up, up to um, now where there is this huge issue about how do we, how do we handle uh, the challenge of eating 600 grams of green every day, uh, reminding us that Green is certainly when it comes to the green uh, vegetables, the, the, the stems and, and, and the leaves, they are from point of view of the plants, they're not supposed to be eaten. Uh, it's only the, the ripe fruits uh, that are supposed to be eaten and hence ripe fruits would have sweetness and they, some of them like tomatoes in example, would also have umami but the rest of it does not have umami and um, uh, but we have to confront ourselves with a craving for umami and if we want to eat more green we have to address that problem and there are various ways you can do that. Isn't it, isn't it basically that umami is flagging up the presence of protein? Umami is elicited by in particular a salt a glutamate from one of the most um, uh, uh, frequent amino acids and proteins, glutamic acid. But in order to, for proteins to have taste, they need to be broken down. And there are very few um, uh, vegetarian sources where proteins actually are broken down into to free amino acids. And, and algae is one example, and particularly the large algae, the, the seaweeds do have, some of them have large amounts of this. But most often, except for a few uh, green uh, vegetables like uh, green asparagus and uh, also some green peas, but in all of these cases, very low amounts, the green does not have any umami. So you have to work on it. And of course, this is something uh, food cultures, other places in the world, uh, and we also earlier actually have to, uh, ways to solve. And the most powerful way of 
of uh, solving it is, is by fermentation. So you would use uh, microorganisms, uh, yeast, uh, fungus, uh, and their enzymes to break down the proteins, and then you will form tons of uh, free amino acids, and in many cases also umami. So that's, that's of course, the trick which is used in vegan cultures, say in, in Japan, or the places in the East, and, and we also did it earlier when fermentation was part of the daily household. It's sort of coming back now, and it gave giving flavors and aromas, and, and particularly umami, which makes all the green much more interesting, much more flavorful. That's interesting. So, I mean, I've I've done fermentation with nettles, for example, which which I know they they already have quite a lot of free glutamate when you when you cook nettles. Um, but it hadn't occurred to me that we were increasing that. I mean, they're certainly very tasty, fermented nettles. Yeah, but sometimes um, one should not not confuse tasty or delicious with umami. Uh, in many cases, you can have, say, lucky combinations of, of aromas and, and the four classical basic tastes such that you will find it, it's delicious. Uh, but umami is special in the sense that the deliciousness is something that is lingering uh, for a long time. It's sort of really filling the mouth. It's uh, something that stimulates appetite and stimulates saliva uh, in a way that is quite different from the other basic senses. And um, we, I, I think our mission in order to fulfill the UN sustainability goals and also to um, um, uh, align with the recommendations in recent reports as how to make a more sustainable and healthy diet for a growing um, global population, we have to come back to some of the old knowledge about how, how we make uh, green um, more delicious by using umami. And there's an extra thing that come in here because, as I said before, and maybe it's a little bit of a bold statement, I say plants do not want to be eaten. But of course they don't want to be eaten because they cannot, um, when we, we try to eat them, they can't run away. So it's quite different from, 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 from animals. So their protection systems is to um, develop um, uh, bitter compounds and sometimes uh, poisonous compounds. And even though humanity over centuries have breeded uh, vegetables, for instance, that are less bitter, still most of them have they're quite, are quite high, high and bitter, and I guess the most prominent example is, is broccoli or the cabbages that um, need, you, need, uh, you need to develop preference in order to like the bitterness, and it's something that's a big problem with children um, because they're not used to the, the bitter taste. But again, here umami is the cure because umami... We know that from a lot of studies, umami is a way, not only you get umami, but umami tend to um, cut the top of the bitterness. And I don't know if you notice that in, if you do fermentation with, with, with plants that, that, that has some bitterness, that your perception of bitter is actually diminished after the fermentation. And that's all due to, to umami. The interaction of the umami with the bitterness, yeah. So uh, Japanese... Dashi is one example, I guess, of adding umami to vegetables. Yeah. Are there others you would cite as examples of things that we need to revive to create a more sustainable diet? I think, dashi, to me, dashi is, is certainly one of the 
keys here. And 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 uh, as you know, Dashi was the concept of Dashi, as far as one can tell historically, was developed by Zen, Zen Buddhist monks that were faced exactly with the problem, as we mentioned before. They were not, um, in particular, after Zen Buddhism came around, you were not even you were not even supposed to eat fish, so no animal sources at all. And so, how do you make uh, green plants, herbs, vegetables? How do you make them delicious? And then they. They invented, or I don't know how it came about, but certainly figured out that if you you um, use this extract of, of seaweed from the Japanese uh, kombu, the Sagarani japonica, you get this delicious flavor, and that could be even enhanced manifold if you, in the extract, the soup, the hond, if you wish, you added some um, shiitake. Um, and um, we now know there's a particular synergy between glutamate from seaweeds and uh, something that is called free nucleotides, in case of shiitake, it's guanolate, that um, enhances in a highly nonlinear fashion, enhances the umami perception. And um, and in the classical dish, sort of non-vegetarian non, um, uh, dashi, one would use uh, a fish product made from bonito, a product called katsubushi, which is rich in another nucleotide. And it's this combination, um, glutamate on one side, could be from seaweed or uh, inosinate, which is called from fish or granulate from, from shiitake mushrooms, make the umami receptor. And we now know the mechanism, make the umami receptor really signal very strongly to the brain that you've, you've found umami. So umami synergy is very, it's very powerful. You can use it for vegetables, but if, for, for those who are not can, don't know about this concept, they would still know it um, without knowing. For, for instance, in the British version of umami synergy would be egg and bacon mm. and ham and cheese. And it's exactly the same principle. An Italian umami synergy would be a sauce bolognese where you have glutamate from the tomato and, and inosinate the granulate from from the meat. So these combinations is is known um, empirically in many food cultures. And it's very powerful synergy because if you have one of these compounds present, you just need a little bit of the other one to um, make the umami receptor uh, fire. It's a very, um, very strong mechanism. And this, this we can use to make vegetables more, uh, more delectable less bitter, uh, even more sweet. And um, uh, now we, meant, we talked about fermentation before, and uh, you can use all sorts of fermentation with, with yeast or fungus. There's one thing that I use almost every day, which is now also used by many chefs around the world, and that is the, um, the fungus that comes from the, what the Japanese call koji. Mm. I don't know if you come across that. Yeah, yeah, it's an aspergillus. Aspergillus, which is is used to make uh, things like soy sauce and miso and sake. And the, it's the enzyme in this mold uh, that turns the proteins into free amino acids and hence umami. They also turn carbohydrates into sugars without, without giving us more calories. So that provides for sweetness. So if you add some of this koji to, say, your 
the most bitter vegetable you can think of, take broccolini or broccoli, um, then just after a few hours and certainly within a day or two, it's very different in flavor. It's very, very flavorful, much more sweet, without more calories, I should emphasize, uh, more umami. And, and because of, of these effects, also uh, you, you perceive it as, as le less bitter. So it's really a, it's a miracle to make vegetables more delectable. And it's something we should really uh, promote to be on the shelves in the supermarket. It's very easy to use because nowadays you can get, you can get it in a form called shiu koji. And shiu means salt. And it's basically just uh, the molded uh, rice uh, with a fair amount of salt, and but and, and there's no microorganisms in it any longer, but the an, the active enzymes are there, and uh, they will you can just keep in the in, in your refrigerator, and it's it's um, uh, easy to use, and you can just apply a spoonful to a bag of vegetables, and there you go, you have something that is very very flavorful. It's fantastic. Um I, I think it's interesting about the, the, the sort of bitterness interaction. I mean, what, what you were saying before about plants not wanting to be eaten and putting these compounds in, I think there's, there's a lot of research that, that shows that this is a kind of, it's almost like an arms race between us and, and the plants, because what we did in response in evolutionary terms is we found ways to actually incorporate the compounds which the plant has made intending them to be toxins to discourage us from eating them. Mm. That our bodies have learned to metabolize them, which means that we then come back to the plant and say, okay, in actual fact, I now need that compound that you're using to poison me. And right. then the plant responds by increasing the, uh, the dose, as it were. So now it's too much if we eat too much. So the end result is that we eat lots of different plants in very small amounts, and we are now ingesting bioactive compounds that are very helpful to us so we're happy and the plant is only being eaten a little bit yeah so the plant is happy yeah, that sort of speaks for diversity in all respects and I, I would completely subscribe to that point of view yeah and then at the same time you're 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 you're, you're talking about using umami to make the bitterness more tolerable so that's that's almost like a way back in to a relationship with bitter plants that maybe some of us have lost. And as you say, in many cases, these bitter compounds, to the extent they're not too poisonous for us, they actually in small doses are important for, they could be antioxidants, they can also be the kind of metabol metabolites that are actually good for our, for our health. Yeah. And, um, but I, of course, it's, it's, it's again a complicated foodscape, but as you say, diversity, that's the key. We, eat, we have to go back to eat more, many more different kind of species. I'm very interested in the um, umami synergy um, equation with the two different aspects that you've, you've described, the free, the free uh, glutamate and, the, and the, the ribonucleotides. I'm really interested to know, is it the case that these ribonucleotides just don't show up very much at all in, in, in the plant kingdom? Because I've looked at the tables in your book which shows all the analysis. It seems like they're in shellfish, they're in meat, they're in fish, and they're in, in mushrooms and lesser extent seaweed. But are there, are there plant sources of ribonucleotides? Very few. And I think um, the reason is that, and the, or maybe I should say the reason why we find a lot of them in, in animal sources is that 
that um, the, the nucleotides are quite often derived from a compound called ATP, which is the energy source of muscular motion. And, um, and plants don't have any muscles. Uh, and and uh, so so um, that's that's one of the main sources for for for, for the ribonucleotides, and it's actually quite interesting to see how food cultures and I, I'm very passionate about the Japanese food culture, seeing how when it comes to fish, how they've optimized the conditions for both the catching the killing and the preservation of the fish in order to optimize the amount of ATP, which then subsequently can be broken down into these nucleotides. Mm. And um, it, some of that is related to um, the way the, um, the, when the fish is, is caught and slaughtered, it should not be stressed because stressful muscles would use the ATP because the fish is fighting. Um, and then there's less left for the subsequent breaking down into free nucleotides. And, and so there are interesting ways of, if you, if you um, I've been quite interested in sushi over the years and how, um, how you select fish for, for sushi. And there's, a, there's an ancient uh, way, and still the chefs uh, in Japan and also some place in the West where they know about it, actually slaughter fish uh, using this particular te technique. It's called ikijimi. I know there's chefs in, in, in London that also does uh, this. Um, Ishisan at the Uma restaurant in, in London is actually having his fish prepared in this way. And, 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 and the way is that you, you should um, um, sort of um, basically make this fish brain death uh, by, by ruining all the, the connections in the, in the spinal cord. And it's actually a very much more humane way of, of slaughtering the fish. But the, the result is that the muscle is has completely relaxed. The fish is basically brain dead, but the heart is still pumping, pumping blood out. In, and you do this in very cold water. And so the, muscles is very, the muscle is very clean. There's no blood in it. And, and uh, the ATP is, is maintained. And then uh, when you store the fish, and this is what is quite often done with, with uh, things like flunders and halibut and, and turbot, um, you you don't eat them right away. Uh, you usually store them in the cold for one, maybe two days. And during these two days, the enzymes are fast at work at the ATP, and and you form more uh, free nucleotide. In this case, inosinate. And there's a, there is a distinct difference in, in in the taste. It's much more umami, and at the same time, also the texture is changing with the fish, which is is desirable for, for these kinds of fish. So this is just an example. Uh, I know also in 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 our uh, in the Western food cultures, the way uh, way fish are slaughtered um, in big farms, they they cool the fish before they 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 bleed them, and that should also lead to more flavorful, tasty fish because the muscular structure is is not stressed. So in the case of ribonucleotides that are found in in mushrooms and seaweed what's what's the um what's the sort of there because mushrooms and seaweeds also don't have muscles yeah <laughs> um, i mean it, it, it the, uh, the, the the ribonucleotides is of course part of the of the genes um, so it, there is a pool in every cell okay for for which whether it's dna or rna so there's 
is a source. But in many cases, questions like that is difficult to answer because there may be it may be used by the organism in ways we don't know. I mean, it's still puzzling me, and I don't know uh, anyone who knows the answers to that question. How come that the Japanese kombu, which is so prominent to give dashi umami, the Sagarina japonica, how come it has huge amounts of free glutamate? Uh, I know no reason why it should have any benefit from that, but it could be sort of a related trait because something else is happening in the organism. But that's just a matter of fact. Other seaweeds, even if it's claimed now, um, uh, many other seaweeds, for instance, sugar kelp, which, which is in, um, in the same Lamineralis uh, family as, as uh, the Japanese kombu, has very low amounts. So there's really no umami in sugar kelp. Another seaweed, which is interesting when it comes to glutamate, but also nucleotides, that's, um, um, that's nori or porphyra or pyropia, as it's called. Lava in English. Uh, yeah, lava. Yeah. Uh, um, and um, that is actually, I always found that very interesting because together with the tomato, <laughs> that's the one type of foodstuff which have plenty amounts of both glutamate and the free nucleotide. So nori is, is, um, can provide umami synergy on its own. You don't need to pair it with, with something else because usually you need to pair because a particular kind of foodstuff can only supply one of the two components for the, for the synergy. And the tomato is an, is an exception. The ripe tomato is high in glutamate and high in a ribonucleotide called adenylate. And nori, or lava, um, is high in glutamate, reasonably high, and also reasonably high in, uh, in oscillate. And I think, I mean, maybe it's an after rationalization, but I think that's why nori has evolved as a foodstuff that goes well with cooked white rice. Yeah. Because white rice in itself, and, and now we're talking about polished rice as the use in, in many Asian food cultures, it's really only starch. And starch um, is only sweet to the extent that it's broken down by the enzymes in our mouth. And so rice only has the flavors. It has interesting mouthfeel, but it only has the taste and flavors that we add to it. And when we cook sushi rice, we add uh, vinegar to make it sour or salt to make it salty. Um, and um, uh, but then we need umami. So unless you put a piece of uh, uh, kombu in the in the cooking water when you cook sushi rice, which which you do in some recipes, uh, you would have to add something to make rice more interesting. And that so that's where the wraps with nori or cones or the way we just put it on top of the rice. Certainly, combination of a rice with interesting texture, a bit of sweetness, then you bring umami in with the, with the nori. And you, generally it's toasted nori, isn't it? it I, I wonder, is, is there a, um, an enhancement of the ribonucleotide content when you, when you toast nori, is that, or is that just Maillard reaction making Certainly it? not the toasting. In, in, no. in, if anything, the toasting would uh, diminish whatever you have of enzymatic activity in the, in the lab, uh, there is um, 
when 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 nor is made, nor is a kind of a seaweed paper. You you made it from you make it from the lava that is sort of chopped off, and then it's turned into kind of a pulp, and then um, it's dried on mats, but it's dried at low temperature. I think certainly below forty degrees. So there's whatever enzymes in in the seaweed, they're still active, but then when you toast it. Well, that's usually conventionally over gas flame. Then all the enzymes are gone. But the the the, the kind of nori before you toast it, which the Japanese call hoshi nori, which is dried nori, uh, and it has different uh, different flavors. And that is something that well, you can certainly see the enzymes are at work because it doesn't last that long. It quickly changes color, changes the 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 aroma. So the roasting, I would say, stabilize. Whatever you got in it, it may actually um, uh, probably deteriorate some compounds. I, I don't know exactly what's happening, um, but then you get the the um, aroma compounds that is which you usually get when you roast. Uh, maybe combination of carbohydrates and proteins, and there's probably a number of those um, Maillard reaction compounds. That's what's making it more tasty. Exactly, and and then also another. Important point: It's also making it, 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 it it's crisp, and um, this is something that most people who eat sushi really don't know. Because if you don't have it just out of the hand of the chef or you make it yourself, then the nori it it absorbs the water, so it's getting sort of mushy and soft, even slimy, and certainly not crisp. But you know, if you take a piece of nori just out of the back, um, it's just like paper. You can tear it like paper. It sounds like paper when you when you tear it, and it's very crisp. And the sensory sensation eating that kind of nori is is very different from having it in the wet state around a lump of rice. So maki sushi has to be eaten right away. Within I would say within 15 seconds. Wow. <laughs> And that's why it's best to make it yourself or sit at the sushi bar and get it out of the hands of the chef. Yeah, you need very fast service for that. One thing I wanted to um, also ask you, now, now we're talking about seaweeds. Um, of course, the, the, the thing that's really uh, making seaweeds accessible to people in terms of a particular food culture at the moment, it, it is predominantly Japanese cuisine. But um, I know it's especially reading your book, you've got some nice coverage there of really ancient uh, Scandinavian use. You talk about Viking use and a lot of, lot of stuff from Iceland and, and, and so on from the old, the old records. And also you've got a nice section on Native American use. I just wonder whether um, you know, in the long run, everybody's going to come to the party in terms of that we, we derive insights into, into the culinary use of seaweeds. From, from many of these different traditions. Um, I, mean, it's, I thought the Native American stuff is particularly interesting because they've, they've got whole procedures that have been studied around the, um, the preservation. There are a few places in the West where there are some historical records of seaweeds being used as well. Uh, in, in Europe, it would be mostly in, um, I mean, Brittany, Northern Brittany, uh, Wales, obviously, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, of course. Mm. And then Iceland, and um, I, I, it's. I think it's changing um, uh, over the 10, 15 years. I've been interested in seaweeds, and I, I know it from food culture 
where I live daily, when I started talking about seaweeds, people say, this is, you can't eat that. And then they pinch their nose and say, it's this horrible, smelly stuff because they don't know about the fresh seaweeds. It's only the broken down seaweeds that is washed ashore. Um, and I always um, claim that in order to make um, inroads into using seaweeds, one should focus on taste. So now we're back to what we started talking about in the beginning. If you want people to eat more seaweeds, um, it's not enough to say it's healthy and sustainable and and from the bottom of the food web and all these things, which are very important, certainly for for changing our uh, our food system. But but if it doesn't taste good, people are not going to eat it. But fortunately, it's not a big problem because most seaweeds are actually quite quite tasty and and of course it's very interesting then to point out that we have a basic taste umami which were first proposed in the context of of the flavor or taste of of seaweed do you say something about that because i don't think we've 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 mentioned that how umami was first mentioned in the context of seaweed well it, uh, since it's it was um uh, in the context of dashi so we talked about dashi as being uh the basis of all, all Japanese soups and also for making vegetables more delectable. And, and, and the recipe for making a dashi is to make an aqueous extract of, of the seaweed, kombu, uh, Japanese seaweed, and then add some either fish or shiitake to, to really enhance the flavor. And in 1908, there was a Japanese chemist, Kikuna Ikeda, who decided that he wanted to figure out how come that Japanese soups taste uh, umai. And umai means uh, delicious. And um, uh, this chemist, he was a professor at uh, Tokyo University and he studied in Europe. And when he came back, he, he decided to figure out what is it in this seaweed um, in particular that, um, that provides this wonderful flavor. And he found out that there are very large amounts of free glutamate. And 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 um, and then he said, uh, glutamate, uh, and this is sodium glutamate, ammonium sodium glutamate, and there's about three percent of the dry weight that is free glutamate in Japanese kombu. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ikeda, Professor Ikeda said, this is what makes it delicious. So he said, I've found for this flavor what, uh, say, sugar is for sweet. And 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 then he said, um, uh, it's so. Umai, so delicious that we need a new term um, that describes it's the most delicious of deliciousness. And so he coined the word umami, which means basically the, the center or the essence of delicious flavor. And, and he proposed in 19, a paper in 1909 that this was uh, a basic taste, which was quite bold because claiming that something is a basic taste is, is not something that um, is easy to get through with and it took almost a hundred years before it was widely accepted and that was only after the discovery of umami receptors or that I should say glutamate receptors in, in our taste buds and uh, so it's an interesting history and then more to it because um, when he when he discovered this he immediately saw that this was a this could be commercialized so he he founded together with the Japanese industrialist, uh, Mr. Suzuki, he founded a company, um, which is now one of the world's largest companies for making ingredients for, for food. It's called Adinomoto.
And uh, this couples up to uh, the story about uh, about MSG, because this is MSG, and uh, this is long discussion. I don't know if you want us to go into it, but as a scientist, uh, I have to say that the MSG uh, is the most well-studied uh, food component, and it's no more dangerous than that kitchen salt. Is it? Is it? I mean, uh, I. I think I'd agree with you on that one in terms of like th there being something in in the stuff itself that's that's harmful to the body. But what about when MSG is paired with food that doesn't have protein in it? That's the thing I've been looking at. If 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 the the food is just loads of, loads of MSG chucked in there, your 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 belly then releases protease to to, to digest protein. No protein comes, and that's, for example, with with potato crisps, glutamate and bionucleotides um, in the flavorings there, but there's not actually very much protein in the crisps. As I understand it, the reason why you sit there eating those crisps and you feel sick is because your body's been stimulated to expect protein and none come, but you keep eating the umami food because it tells you it's got protein in it, and therefore you're never satisfied, and uh, isn't that another flavor chemical trick? It, it, it is, and I'm not, I'm not advocating that one should just add MSD to food. Um, but I have, to, I have yeah. to say that if someone says that MSD is dangerous um, as a molecule, um, mm. or you're allergic to it, you would also have to be that from, from tomatoes, or parmesan cheese, or yeah. cured ham. Uh, I wear the fact that because just just like the flavor compounds, you can make food edible which you shouldn't eat. That's the trouble. Yeah. But it's not because of the the, uh, the MSD itself. I mean, it's, in fact, it's something our body produces itself. We use it uh, in the neural system. It's it's, it's a nutrient, and um, and uh, it's it's not an essential amino acid. It's something we can we can synthesize ourselves. But I, I would certainly agree with you that if you add tons of it and you get sort of addicted to it because you crave more and more, and it makes you eat food you shouldn't eat, and that's that's a, that's a, uh, that's a problem. But the thing isn't toxic in itself, yeah. yeah. No, it, no, it isn't. I, I just had a funny thought when you were saying about the seaweed and people saying I don't want to eat that because it's they associate it with the smelly rotten stuff on the beach. I was just thinking, what, what about if nobody ate meat and, and their only experience of, of dead carcasses was, was rotten animals lying by the side of the road? Yeah. <laughs> you'd see it, you'd have a problem getting people to start eating meat, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's the same thing. I, 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 I usually use another sort of um, comparison. I say, suppose you never had apples and you go into an orchard and just stare on the ground and you see all these rotten apples and it's a horrible smell and you would never think about biting in it. But if you look up and see the wonderful apples, fresh apples in the tree, uh, it's quite different. Yeah. And the same thing with seaweeds. I mean, there's a stuff that is deteriorating on the foreshore and then, but you have all the wonderful organisms out in the fresh water. And I think then if you had the experience from seeing them first, um, you would not have the same sort of repulsive uh, behavior to to smelly seaweeds. And and I think it's it's um, 
I think it's well on the way, isn't it? The sort of acceptance of seaweeds by the by the palate of, of the general public. I think perhaps it's further ahead in Denmark than it is in England. I see more and more products on the shelf. I mean, it, uh, it was certainly in this country, um, in this part of, of Europe, um, there was sort of a, there was a development where people learned that seaweeds are edible and, and they're nutritious, uh, maybe even healthy, and also tasty. But then there was not a market. That it is, it is, when they go to the store, it's not available. They have to get it from the internet. Or only there were only certain specialty stores that will carry it. This is changing now. I mean, in this country, we now got a handful of small Danish companies that actually harvest seaweeds and bring it to the market. And so, you know, if you're going to change dietary habits, uh, foodstuff has, it has to be available and it has to be reasonably convenient. Uh, on the other hand, once once it's there, and that's usually where I would like to promote seaweeds. Uh, the best seaweed, in my, from my point of view, uh, and that's sort of gastronomically um, um, influenced, that is the best seaweed is actually the dry seaweed, something that has been picked from the best water, the cleanest water in the world, cared for, dried, uh, and stored under close conditions. That's, the, that's, I think, the best source for eating seaweeds. And once you've got the dry seaweed, you can just keep them on your cells and your cupboards and in your kitchen, and it's easy to just pull out, soak them, or grind them up, or depending on how you're going to use it. I mean, as you know, there basically no kind of food item. You can't use seaweeds in one way or the other. The simplest one, of course, to use it instead of salt. Uh, you can use it as a spice. You can use it in a dressing. You can use it in a salad, um, and these. The dry source is very easy to use. It's also more safe from the point of view of food security, whereas fresh seaweeds um, needs more attention to be brought to the market. We pretty quickly gave up working with the fresh ones because there's all sorts of problems with um, shelf life. There's a challenge with with um, with uh, with chefs because chefs have the notion from from plants and vegetables, that they have to be fresh. And and uh, uh, and they, it's hard, I have a hard time convincing them that they should rather think of, of dry seaweeds. I must say the first time, the first time we ever um, tried selling seaweeds um, to chefs, it, it was the Japanese chefs in, in London. Okay. And um, we were very surprised because none of them wanted fresh seaweeds. We came up with all these lovely fresh seaweeds we'd harvested <laughs> the day before. Yeah. And we quickly learned that the Japanese don't use fresh seaweeds. That's right. They, they're not used to They that. wanted them tried. <laughs> and, and, and there's, a, of course, a, there's an interesting input here from biology because I, I usually claim when I show people the seaweeds and the dry seaweeds and put them in water again that unless they've been damaged in the package, you would have to be a biologist to, to figure out whether it's alive or not. And, and, and the reason for this is, of okay. course, that seaweeds are very simple organisms. There are only a few that have sort of capillary systems or stems. So they're really just a lump of cells and, um, and that are glued together by certain compound polysaccharides that we also use for hydrogels or gelation agents. And they give off water uh, when you dry them, and they take the water back when you rehydrate them. 
So, um, uh, so that's why, I mean, if you take a sort of a front of, of Dolce, which is one of my favorites, or it could also be Laver, um, it could be um, Sugar Kelp, Wing Kelp, put a bag in water, it looks pretty much as when you picked it. Then there's um, something more gastronomic, and that I think there's something happening during the the drying and the storage that seems to dampen the uh, marine flavors. And you may know that kombu, um, which is used for dashi, it's usually stored two years. Uh, the better quality is up to 10 years. And during this process, some of the more harsh marine uh, odors uh, vanish. So it's much milder. Mm. And and um, some have said that it enhances umami. We know for sure it doesn't. But it enhances the perception of umami because of the other more um, potent aroma, marine aroma compounds. They're they're gone, so you pay more attention to the mildness of um, of the taste. And I think that's probably Japanese chefs. They know this, um, and that's why they go for the for the dry. Even though they could, of course, also in Japan get fresh. Or seaweeds, and the fresh seaweeds you see in markets in Japan, it's most often always soldered. For instance, wakame would be soldered. Become very enthusiastic about the winged kelp. Yes, because we don't have that growing where we are, but we've lots of it from from the uh, the north coast of Scotland. I think that's a fantastic seaweed. To me, it tastes like roast chicken. It's wonderful. It's it's uh, so I I would say that. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I've loved dolls, the red seaweed, but, but next and almost equally mm. even to that is, is the wing kelp. And that I, I'll tell you a story. First time I, I had this was actually at Vancouver Island uh, with a quite well-known seaweed, uh, both harvester and, and also researcher, Louis Drewell, runs a little company there. And I was sitting on his porch mm. uh, facing the, the sound, and, and he served me he and his wife served me a meal, lunch, and for dessert we got just fresh, freshly cut up fruits. And then he took out his alaria that was granulated and roasted and tossed it on the, on the fruit. And it was just wonderful <laughs> because it has sort of nutty, nutty flavor, almost chocolately, and a slight bitterness that goes very well with sweet fruit. Uh, so, in that case, the, the, the fact that it's been dried and roasted brings out other flavors. It's also very interesting if, yeah. you, if you blanch it uh, fresh, um, you, can, you, can, um, you can change the color quite dramatically into very, very bright green because all the other pigments are, are broken down. Mm. And then you have something that is just as green and as wonderful as some of the these vacuumer uh, uh, salads that are now sold from the east. And, but it has to be fresh. You cannot freeze it first or dry it first, then, then it doesn't work. But, but uh, try to, next time you get some fresh uh, laria and, and blanch it, I mean, pour boiling water on it, and then cool it down immediately. It's wonderfully green. So I, w- I was going to say about the, um, the fucus species, I think are really interesting, but, but not least because they have amazing nutrient profiles but one thing that seems to be quite striking about um, the Danish market for seaweeds 
and the public acceptance of seaweeds there compared to here is that I know you have um, some seaweed companies there that are, that are selling just bags of some of these fucus species right. and they're just dried fucus. Yes. Uh, in the UK, there's no way to sell that to people. At least no. very few people would buy it because they just don't to do with it and they they, yeah. they find that too challenging. No, I, I'm not particularly happy about these dried fucuses myself and I think the best the thing they can use for is just frying them so you make a, a snack, a crisp snack. But the way I use the fucuses myself, and, and by the way, you should be aware of the fact that in Denmark we have very, um, very short tidal variations such that it's maximum maybe 30 or 40 centimeters, which means that we don't see the species further out. So it's mostly fucus and also some um, sea lettuce or uh, various kind of ulva species. We don't see really any of the interesting red ones and certainly not the big brown ones. Do, do, people, do people not dive for the seaweeds in Denmark? Well, some do, but you know, that would be very few people who would do that. And so, so okay. it's not like in some of the... Uh, around some of the coastlines in in, in 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 Great Britain and Ireland that you can walk out at low tide and pick your seaweeds. So it's mostly fucuses here. But they're actually also quite wonderful to blanch. So they also go pitch green, whether it's a bladder rack or serrated rack. And you can make a wonderful salad after, after having blanched them. And I agree with you, the dry ones, um, first of all, they're not very nice to look at because they're pitch black and the only reasonably delectable way of having them is by, by frying them and using them as a snack. I don't like that in particular either because there's always some oil that comes with it. Well, the, the thing I think they are really good for is, is, is to make a broth. I mean, I just cook them very, very slowly. Um, on a low temperature, and and I've had some very positive response from chefs about that. Um, a couple of the chefs that work at a fat duck, they they said that they they thought it tasted like veal stock. You may want to know that the fucuses have no umami. We just recently measured that. There's really no glutamate. One of the studies we're just about to write up is that we we found that the human sensation of what a panel would claim is umami is not simply related to glutamate content. And we, in fact, found that uh, that uh, a sensory panel that has been exposed to, we, I think we did 38 different kinds of seaweeds from dashi, that even those that have very small levels of glutamate, the panel actually scored as having a reasonable amount of umami, which means that there's some multi-sensory interactions with possibly with, with the aroma compounds. But the mechanism, we do not know. But I'm always skeptical when chefs say they, they, have a, they have a seaweed that provides umami, and I also see many companies now use that as a selling trick. In many cases, it can't be because of glutamate okay. content, because there's none. There are many things we don't know, and um, uh, there are obvious things that should be studied. Um, it's not always easy to get research funding to, to do these kind of, of studies, but I, I, I hope and, and, and think that when it's becoming clear that how we're going to move to, to eat more green, that seaweeds will be brought center stage and much more research will be conducted for, for the benefit of eating, eating more green. Because I think 
seaweeds and the flavors from seaweed is one of the mechanisms, and dashi is an example, how we could eat more vegetables. So it's not only about eating more seaweeds, but it's actually using seaweed, seaweed flavors and aromas to make some of the green stuff more interesting and more delicious. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a fascinating way of presenting both umami and seaweed. It's, that's a new perspective for me, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Well, Ole, thank you very much for um, giving us some of your time and, and of your um, thoughts and ideas. Pleasure is on my side. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for the Worldwide Podcast. And um, as usual, do look at the links and materials on the homepage for the podcast on the forager.org.uk website we always have relevant links to to the podcast and sort of interesting background information and so on but um i'm going to add to that this week with something which we we haven't mentioned on the podcast but um if you're living in england um i'm going to excuse the focus on england but it's just what i'm personally aware of because i'm living in england we have um this month a lot of activities going on actions going on around the extinction rebellion especially in in london so we're going to put a link up about that and uh, just encourage you to um to check that out and and maybe get involved in in some of the actions so um you know we see the um the whole stuff that we're talking about that i talked at length about in the introduction there about re restoring the vital connection and so on it is sort of getting to the root of the problem but there's um there's no doubt that in the meantime, we we have to uh, start seeing things happen at, at government levels and so on to just, just kind of stop the carnage. So that's really important as well. Okay, that's it for this week's World Wild Podcast. 